0: Good morning. Good morning. If uh, you don't know who I am, my name is Carter Brown. I'm the director of student ministries here at Rio Vista Church. So I get to hang out with a lot of high school, and middle school kids. So whenever I get to hang out with adults, it's pretty exciting. Uh, if you've been here for the last few years, I pretty much get to speak the privilege of speaking every Labor Day. So it's, I guess it's my slot. Um, so thanks for coming and worshiping with us this morning. Um, as Matt mentioned earlier, Tom's been going through a series on James, and he's been talking about God in our everyday life and and what it looks like to be a Christian, and that the works that we do is a product of our faith. And he mentioned last week that uh, he he challenged the entire congregation to read the book of 1 John, so if you did, that's awesome, and said that John makes James look like a schoolboy. So I thought, why don't we look at what John says? So this morning, we're going to be looking at 1 John 3. So if you have your Bibles, that'd be awesome if you could turn there and read along with us. And if you notice a camera in the back, don't worry about it. It's for a Hope South Florida video. They're just shooting some B-roll today. So, you know, we're we're not getting that famous yet. But before we uh, read from God's Word, let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your Word. And God, right now in this place, I pray that you would humble all of our hearts, including my own, that we would be open and receptive by your Spirit to hear your Word and to take it as truth. Lord, um, you demand a lot from us. And we know that when you've transformed us, that it is our joy to give. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that we would call to mind those ways in which we need to be more like your Son. And that we would take the words that are said not as my words but as your words god through the apostle john we thank you that you're so gracious and loving to us and this in jesus name we pray amen so this morning i want to start with two questions that kind of wrap up the entire thing that john is saying as a letter And he's asking the question, what does it look like to love God? What does that mean to love God? We know Jesus talks about loving God and loving your neighbor. Loving God is apparently really important. It's number one on the list. So the question is, what does that look like? What are the ways in which we love God? And I think there's a lot. I want to name a few. I think we love God in learning, in in learning more about his word and studying it. We love God in solitude and fellowship, and and getting into a community group, and accountability, and and growing with other believers. We love God in service, and worship, and prayer, and appropriate speech, and Sabbath keeping, and evangelism, and mercy, and hospitality, and humility, and we love God in giving. And these are just a few of the many ways that we can love God. But this morning, John is talking about one specific type of love. And I think it's a love that produces all of these others and kind of covers it. And it's love and obedience. And if you're anything like me, when you heard Matt mention the word obedience earlier and me mention it now, automatically it starts to conjure up all these thoughts and images in your mind. And it's typically negative. When I was growing up, you know, you heard the word as a child, you need to obey me. You're part of this family, so you need to be obedient. And for me, that meant I had to not go to the beach with my friends on Saturday, but pull weeds for five hours. So obedience wasn't like the most attractive word growing up, and it still instilled in me. Obedience, to me, kind of feels like something I have to do that I don't really want to do. It's like, okay, you know, I'm part of the family, so i got to be obedient. Wonderful, so I get to pull weeds all day. That sounds like a lot of fun. So when God talks about obedience... I think we have to be careful that we don't bring that perception into it. That obedience for God means that we have to drag our feet. God tells us all these things he wants us to do. Okay, I'm supposed to be obedient, so I'm going to do it. But it kind of feels like I'm pulling weeds. That's not the obedience that God is talking about. And it's also not the obedience where we think that, okay, I'm going to be obedient because then God's going to give me a lot of good stuff. So if I'm really obedient, if I'm a really good person, God's going to bless me with all types of cool things, so therefore I'm, I'm kind of jacked about being obedient. It's actually obedience with joy, that when God calls us to be obedient, it's not that we're doing it dragging our feet, it's not that we're doing it because we're trying to earn something, it's that we're obedient because it's impossible for us not to be. Because what we see that John is going to talk about in this these 10 verses and also what is talked about in the entirety of the New Testament by Jesus himself is that if you have experienced transformational love, meaning if you've experienced the love of God, which is transformational, you will necessarily become obedient. It just happens. It's impossible not to be. And it's a joy. And so that is the type of obedience that John is talking about this morning and is calling us to think on. It's an obedience that just flows out from our heart being transformed. So let's read 1 John 3, 1 through 10. If you have your Bibles, if not, you can look on the screen. Here's what it says. John says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So John, in a nutshell, in these first ten verses, says this. If you've been transformed by the love of God, you will be obedient to him because Jesus demands everything from us, not just a portion. And John here is writing this letter to not just one church, but to a multitude of churches. There's a bunch of churches in an area and they're all facing a similar issue. And John, as we see, he calls them beloved or dear friends, meaning he knows these people well. These are his friends. It's it's the idea of intimacy and care. So these are his friends from different churches that he hears about Are really struggling. So he writes this letter. And the reason they're struggling is because there's this group that have kind of cut off from the church. They're called the successionists. And what has happened if they have said, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus, but it doesn't really matter how you live. And you should kind of do these things and live like this. So the church is really confused. They're kind of wondering, do we really believe God are we really in the truth? Do we have eternal life? Do we really have salvation? Because we're hearing two different things. And so John writes to them and he says this, he wants them to, he wants to bolster their assurance of salvation. He wants them to know you are in fact a child of God. You're experiencing eternal life and God does love you. You're in the truth. And the way he does this is he gives them a criteria. He says, listen, it's very evident to understand the successionists, these people that claim to believe in the God of the Bible, are not in fact children of God because of the way that they live. So he says, here's what it looks like to be a child of God, and here's what it looks like to be a child of the devil, as he calls it. And he writes this in verse 1. He comes right out of the gate and he says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. He's recalling something he says earlier in John 1, in the the gospel of John, where he says this. John 1, 12 through 13, he says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He talks about this, and he wants them, in the very beginning, before he goes any further in these ten verses, he wants to say, listen, you need to remember right now how great God's love is for you what he has done for you. Jesus was humiliated and crucified and tortured on the cross to do away with your sin. And he rose from the grave three days later to prove victory and to offer you a relationship with God. And if you've received him, you are right now in this place, a child of God. You have been made a part of his family. Remember that. Hold on to that. He goes on and he says, Beloved, We are children of God now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. He says, listen, my friends, my dear friends, remember God's great love, that you are in fact a child of God right now. And then he says something interesting. He talks about us being like him. And it's not like him as in we are to look like Jesus. If you're like me and you hear the word Jesus, unfortunately there's this image that always pops in your head. Mine is Jesus in robes and his sandals, long flowing hair, big beard, blue eyes. I don't know why. He definitely didn't have blue eyes, maybe. And he's carrying a baby lamb with a big smile. I don't know why that happens to me. But when I think of Jesus, this picture that I saw a few years back, it's like imprinted in my mind. He looked nothing like that. I don't think he carried that many lambs around. But it's not that we're to look like Jesus, obviously, but it's that we're to be like him. So we look at Jesus and we see how he lived and who he was and his character and the qualities that he had and what he focused on. And so we are to be like him. And John is saying this. He's saying you right now are part of God's family. And just like you who have a family, if you have children, you have certain expectations for them. They bear your name. And they're your children. And so you give them expectations. You want them to work really hard at school and do the best they can. You want them to really respect their elders. You want them to use appropriate speech. You want them to do all of these things. You have these expectations for them. And you want them to be obedient to them. And the same way, God has made us a part of his family. And he has expectations for us. And our expectations is that we would become like Jesus. We would become like he is. And, and John makes this really, really clear in verse 3. And He says this, Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. It's very, very blunt. He says, if you believe in Jesus, if you hope in him and trust in him, Jesus Christ, who is pure, perfect, if you believe in him, then you are therefore necessarily going to purify yourself to become like him. So as you live your life, you're going to become more like Jesus because you're in his family. That's who you're to be like. And I think this is really important for us to think about here when he talks about purifying ourselves, because it's more than just trying to fix the sins inside of us. Purifying yourself is working through and removing by God's grace, by his spirit in us, it's working through and removing those things inside of us that we shouldn't have the evil and the sin inside of us, but when we work through and we, we, we try to remove something, it manifests itself in the way that we live. So, for instance, if you're sitting here and you're thinking about the ways in which you're not like Jesus, and you're thinking, man, you know, I really am struggling with selfishness, which we all do. And you're saying, God, I need to work on this. I need, I need by your spirit, I need to learn how to start to purify my heart to become more like Christ who was selfless. What's going to happen is, as you're working through that, as you're purifying this ongoing action, you're going to manifest it in the way that you live. So maybe you become more generous financially. Maybe you become more generous with your time. Maybe instead of going on a vacation two or three times a year, you decide to go on a mission trip with your family because you're working on selfishness. And so in your life, you're acting more selfless. Or maybe you really struggle with loving other people if they're not like you and they're kind of different or they're dirty or they're hard to put up with, you're, you kind of really struggle. And you know that Jesus loved everyone. He loved the rich and the poor. And you're saying, okay, I know I need to be more like you, God. And so I'm going to, I'm going to work on this. By your spirit, I'm going to start to purify my life of this, this kind of cancer of not accepting other people. And so what happens is you then maybe on a Saturday instead of Watching football the entire day and just doing what you want to do. You decide, you know what, my friend really needs a lot of help. And I'm going to go, I'm going to spend my Saturday with him and I'm going to help him out. Or you get involved in a local ministry and you want to help out, uh, Hope South Florida with the homeless initiative and you want to be a part of what they're doing on some of the Saturdays of a month. These are ways in which when you're purifying yourself, it will manifest it in how you live. So it's more than just saying, I need to be patient. Okay, let me work on patience. But that will it will result in the way that you live. If you're working on selfishness in your life, you will be more selfless. And John talks about this, this idea of asking ourselves the question, do we love the world more than Jesus? Because that's kind of the root of it all. And he says this in 1 John 2. He says in First John two, fifteen through 17 Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride in possessions is not from the Father but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. It's pretty blunt again right there. He says, listen, this is the filter that you're to use for everything in your life. The way that you look at money, the way that you look at activities, the way that you look at your time, the way that you look at vacations, the way that you look at your family is to go through the filter of asking yourself this question. What do I love more, Jesus or the world? Because John says, listen, don't deceive yourself. All the things of the world, the pride and possessions and the lust of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, they are all passing away and they are not of God. But what is, is the will of God, that we are to do his will, which is to become more like Jesus. And so purifying yourself is looking at your life and and asking yourself, it's very easy to do a diagnostic, and I had to do this this week, um, and it It's rough, (laughs) but it's good. And looking at your life and your week and the way you live and saying, in this thing, do I care about it more than I care about God? Is this what I live for over God? Is this what I focus on over God? Because our focus and our goal and our end is to be purifying ourselves through his spirit to become more like Jesus. That is what the children of God look like and how they act. And so in everything that we do, in every single aspect of our life, we are to strive to become more like Jesus. So we're to become more gracious, more generous, more sacrificial about others, forgiving, loving, focused on advancing God's kingdom. And every single one of us, and Tom talked about this last week, we are all to be helping and caring for the poor and the orphans, and the widows, and the homeless, and the needy. That is the mark of a Christian. That they get these things. That they don't care about the things of the world. But when they enter into the world, they look at everything through the lens of, I'm striving to be more like Jesus in this. I'm striving to live more like Christ. And so we're striving to, to look at his life and to try to model it more, to care more about prayer, more about studying his word, more about the rich and the poor. And he actually focuses on the poor a lot more than the rich, so maybe we should too. That is our goal. That is who we are to be because we're God's child now. And I want to ask this question. I think it's a really important one. I want you to answer honestly in your mind. When you look at your salvation, if you believe in Jesus and you have faith and you're, you've been saved by God, what do you focus on more? What do you want more? Okay, Would you rather, are you focused more on being saved from the penalty of sin or are you focused on being saved from sin? Because I think there's a difference. Because all of us in this room, if we've read Scripture, we know that the penalty of sin is terrifying. The idea of hell and what that means and what that looks like, all you have to do is read the pages of scripture and it will terrify you. None of us want that penalty. So all of us would obviously say, yes, of course, I want to be saved from the penalty of sin. I mean, I love Jesus and I love that he saved me from that. But the problem is, I think that that's what we care about most. And the problem with that is, it causes in us to not really care about our sin. We don't care that we're sinful. We don't really. It's not a big deal that we continue to do things over and over and over again. The only reason we care is because we don't want to be punished for it. So we need Jesus so he can kind of forgive that, so we're not going to be punished for the things that we do. But if we really want, more than anything, to be saved from sin, then we hate it. And when we look at sin in our heart and in our life, we want to remove it. We want it out of there. And we know that Jesus has come and he said, listen, I've done away with sin. I've taken it out. I've removed it. You are free from it. That is what he talks about way more than the penalty of it. And when we focus on that, I think it helps us to understand that living for Jesus is not dragging your feet. It's exciting. Because it means that we're removing the sin inside of our hearts, and Jesus is taking it out. That's why he came. And John will, will continue to say this throughout these few verses. He says this in verses 4 and 5. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So whoever is this, it's this ongoing action, they continue and continue and continue and continue to sin, they're practicing lawlessness. You know that he, Jesus, appeared to take away sins. Not just to take away the penalty, but to take them away. And in him there is no sin. So the reason Jesus came is not so that if you believe in him, you can get your ticket and it's stamped so that one day when you die, you come up to the the pearly gates and Peter's there and you hand him the ticket and he's like, oh, you got it stamped, you're in. He's not saying that. Now, we know that is true, that if we've been born of God, when we die one day, we will be in eternity with God. But he's saying Jesus came to take away sin. And it's more than just that Jesus came that he would one day take away genocide and rape and murder and violence. It's more than that. He wants to take away that and the sin in your heart. That is our focus because Jesus is not okay with our sin. And he actually freaks a lot of us out, including myself, in Matthew 7 when he says this. Matthew seven twenty one through 23 reads, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, the day of judgment, Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And I think John is picking up on this passage when he talks about lawlessness. And he's saying, that a lot of people, just like the successionist that John is addressing in this letter, claim to believe in God, even the God of the Bible, and Jesus. And yet there's no evidence of that in their life at all. They continue to do whatever they want to do, and live the way they want to live. There's no change. And they're going to come before God, and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, hey, let me in. And Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. You never did, what does he say, the will of my Father. You never did it. You didn't care about it. Because my children, they are part of my family and they try to live up to those expectations. They strive to become more like me and they do my will. Matthew 25, read it when you get a chance. It'll terrify you as well. He separates the sheep and the goats and he tells all the sheep to come on in because they've fed the poor. They've clothed the naked. They've visited the sick. They've brought shelter to those without it. And then he looks at the others and he says, you never did any of these things. So you you can't come in. And what he's saying here is not that we're saved by our good works or that we can earn God or that, hey, listen, if you're really, really good and you really do God's will and you're really obedient and you're like fake excited about it, then God's going to love you. And you get to come into heaven. And when you stand before Peter, it's like, Hey, man, you did, you, you fed so many, you know, hungry people and you gave so many clothes away and you gave up your house and you're awesome. So come on in. It's not that we're not saved by our works. And that's not what John is advocating or Jesus is advocating. But he is saying that if you believe in Jesus, that love is transformational, meaning it changes you. And since it's changed you, you will be obedient and you will strive to do God's will. And many people pretend to have experienced that. He says, going on in verse 6, no one who abides in him, Jesus, keeps on sinning. Okay, No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. I think he's thinking, again, about the passage we just read, that if you continue to sin, this ongoing action, meaning you don't change, you don't care about your sin at all, there's no repentance, there's no remorse, then you might want to ask yourself if you really know God. Because if you know God, you hate your sin, and you're working on it. And it's important here that we make sure that we know that in First in, in, in John 1, John says something, and he sets this up. And it's important for us to read this. So we know that our salvation is not because we're good. He says this in First John 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So if you claim that you don't sin, you're lying. (laughs) We all sin. And that our call is to confess our sins, and Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us. And then he goes on in verse 2, and he he tells us exactly why, chapter 2, he tells us exactly why he wrote this letter. He says this, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So he's writing the letter to us so that we will continue to no longer sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous. I love that passage because he's telling us that we are sinful people and that as children of God, we've been made someone different. And because we are now a child of God, we strive no longer to sin because we hate it. We don't just want to be saved from the penalty of it, but we want to be saved from it. And because of that, we now strive towards righteousness, to obedience. But if you sin, you have Jesus there as your advocate. That's so incredible. Ephesians 2, you've heard it before. It tells us this, it says, For you've been saved by grace through faith, it's not by works, so that no one can boast. It's a gift of God. So you have been saved by God's gift to you, which is grace, and through your faith. You have not been saved by how many good things you can do, and you never will be. But then it goes on, and it says in verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that we should walk in them. So he ends with telling us we're saved by grace through faith. It's nothing you can do, so you you can sigh, a sigh of relief. But you have been saved to something. Jesus has saved you not just so you can stamp your ticket, but so that you can be obedient, so that you can do the things that God has prepared for you to do. You have been saved to good works, and that you should walk in them. And that's so important for us to wrestle our minds around. And that's what John is talking about. in verse 7, he goes on, he says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. So whoever does what is right is in fact righteous. Meaning the children of God do what is right and they are righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Here's the distinction. The children of God are pursuing righteousness to do what's right. The children of the devil continue to sin, meaning there's no change. And the reason we know that that's what he's talking about is he says, the devil's been sinning from the beginning. So from the beginning, the devil has never stopped sinning. He's never changed. He knows God exists. He doesn't change. And he's saying, the children of the devil, even though they may believe God exists, they never change. Their lives are not transformational. Because the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He says, listen, just to make it clear, as we've been talking about, Jesus came not just to save us from the penalty of our sin, but he came to do away with it, to remove all filth and all sin and all evil, and to bring the kingdom of God here. That was his purpose. That was his mission. He's trying to undo the works of the devil. And what is the devil? What are his works? He wants us to live for ourselves. He wants us to think obedience is a terrible thing where we're dragging our feet, and what God says in here, how he tells us how to live, is not as fun. He wants us to focus most of our attention and our mind and our lives on our weekly our weekly schedule, our daily planners our vacations, and how much fun we can have this weekend. That's what he wants us to focus on because that means that we're going to be ineffective and do nothing for God. C.S. Lewis has this quote that I think is brilliant. He says this, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. I think he's right on. The devil and his works, he wants us to focus on this world. He wants us to focus on ourselves and what we can do and how we can continue to prosper and how we can have more fun in our lives and all of these things. He wants us to get the most out of life, where we have been called by Jesus to focus on getting the most out of Christ and bringing the most to Christ. That is our call. And when we focus on bringing the kingdom of God here, and we focus on Jesus who is pure, perfect, and we say, okay, I believe in Jesus. I trust in him. I'm a child and a part of your family, God. So now, therefore, through your spirit, I want to purify my heart and my life to become more like you. When we say that, we become effective in this world. Because purifying yourself manifests itself in the way that you live. When you work on selfishness, you become less selfish. And then he drives home this point in the last two verses. John says this, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. He says, if you've been born of God, if you've received Jesus in faith and received the grace of God, you've been transformed. You're no longer who you used to be. As it's talked about other places in Scripture, you're a new creation because God has put his seed in your heart, and you cannot keep on sinning. It's impossible for you because God is rooted in your heart. And so obedience to you is something you do out of joy is something you strive towards. We see in scripture this idea, you've plenty of verses talk about fighting the good fight, striving, running the race, pressing on towards the goal. And why is that there? It's there because that is God's will for us. Is that we would strive and fight and press on and run to Jesus and to be more like him. The idea of our life is perseverance. It's sanctification. It's a progressively becoming more like Christ. That is what God's people do because they have a seed in their heart that eventually grows into a huge tree. It takes time for a tree to grow. You put a seed in the ground, you water it, it's going to be small, and it's going to get big eventually. And that's us. God's seed is in our heart, and if it's there, it will grow. And so we know that transformational love demands that we are obedient. You know, Jesus talks about this all the time in his apostles. He talks about the word repent. You've probably heard that before. It's used fifty-six times in the New Testament, so a lot. And almost every single time it has to do with salvation. He says this in Mark 1:15: repent and believe in the gospel. Luke 5, 32, I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Luke 13, 5. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Acts 3.19, Repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. He's not telling us that we can earn our salvation. He's not telling us that God's going to love us if we're better. He's telling us that a marker of the Christian faith is that if you believe, you will repent. If you believe truly, you understand that sin is horrible and you're trying and you're turning and you're feeling remorse over it you're confessing it to God, and you're becoming more like Jesus. That's what it means to be a child of God. And he just kind of makes it all clear in verse 10. He says, by this it is evident who are children of God, and who are children of the devil. Okay, so this is what it looks like to be a child of God, and this is what it looks like to be a child of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Pretty blunt. It says, if you love Jesus, if you love God, the question we asked at the very beginning, what does it look like to love God? It means you practice righteousness and you love other people. That's what it looks like. I think that's why when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment he gives He gives two. He says, love God and love your neighbor. Because you can't love God without loving your neighbor. You can't love God without practicing righteousness. They're interchangeable. We're saved, not because of what we do, but by God's grace. But if we've been saved, we've been transformed. And we understand that God wants all of us. And we're obedient. I want to end with uh, Luke 14, 31-33, where Jesus is pretty clear. He says this, Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus says, listen, if you're my disciple, if you're a child of God, if you're in my family, you have to understand that I demand everything. I want it all, not a piece, not a portion, all of it. And John is telling us here that our life is to learn how to give more and more and more of ourselves to God and his kingdom and his purposes, because our goal and God's will for us is to be like Jesus, to renounce the world and to be like Jesus. So let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You that You're so blunt with us because we know, and I know, that we're so easy to justify the way that we live. We're so easy just to be okay with our sin. And Lord, You call us here to remember how great Your love was for us. That You sent Jesus to be humiliated, tortured, and killed because of sin. Because He's coming to do away with it and to take it away. And, Lord, you call us through your Spirit to purify ourselves, to pray to you and to seek you that we would remove sin that is in our heart and our lives. And we know that in that it will manifest itself by us living differently. Lord, we pray that your word would take root in our lives and that the seed that you have planted in our heart through grace and faith would grow that we would produce more and more fruit, learning how to do what is right and love other people. And God, we just thank you first off that you love us because we didn't deserve it. But now we want to love you and love others back. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.